Russia's invasion of Ukraine drags on no victory in sight for either side, so now a rather agitated Vladimir Putin seems to be resorting to anti-Semitism as part of his propaganda campaign. He's not only targeting the Jewish president of Ukraine, he's turned on one of his oldest political patrons. Anti-Jewish propaganda is not unusual in Russian history, but it is a change for Putin. Dr. Leon Aaron is with the American Enterprise Institute and he writes about this development for The Atlantic. For the first time ever, he started stressing the Jewishness of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. And even more interestingly, he suddenly remembered that one of his top aides, incidentally, also a personal friend and a man responsible for Putin's transfer from St. Petersburg to Moscow, where he began his career, is a man by the name of Anatoly Chubais. And suddenly, out of the blue, Putin said, well, you know, I had that aide. I don't know what happened to him. But, oh, yes, I understand he is in Israel. And he absconded. He used a very kind of fraught Russian term, udral, absconded. And I understand he's in Israel now. And he is no longer Anatoly Borisovich, and that he used Chubai's patronymic. But he is something like um, Moshe Israelovich, which, of course, is a total lie. And to that, the fact that Chubais is half-Jewish on his mother's side. And of course, that is a message. Look, first of all, with Zelensky, we're fighting brotherly people. Russians are fighting Ukrainians, ultimately because of the West's installing that Jewish person in charge and put him in charge of Ukraine. Leon, how does he square this with the fact that A, Zelensky is Jewish and B, he's been saying for nearly two years now, we're fighting the rise of neo-Nazis? (laughs) Well, that's exactly what happened. That was a planted question at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum in uh, this past June. And Putin, of course, was prepared. And so he kind of soft shoe dances around. Yeah, he is Jewish. But first of all, he was installed there by the West. And secondly, look, look how wily the West was. The West installed a Jew in charge of Ukraine to camouflage, to hide the fact that it's a neo-Nazi regime. You know, again, it's still hard to square, but that's what Putin tells the people. The interesting thing is, though, and you point this out in your really compelling piece for The Atlantic, this is actually not the history of Putin and his attitude to Jewish people or to Israel, is it? Why is this a break with Putin's past? That's what makes it so interesting and dramatic. Yes, I mean, not only Putin himself, constantly, you know, we could see the Jewish people around Putin, including his favorite teacher of German, including his favorite coach of judo, including his judo partners. And most interestingly, in almost quarter of a century in charge, he really held back his propagandists, who I'm sure were itching to lay their hands on the Jews. And this is, shows that Putin, in terms of his personal predilections, is not an anti-Semite. But then anti-Semitism is never about the Jews only. And I'm not talking about the personal one. I'm talking about the state one, which is promoted the political anti-Semitism, if you wish. Apparently, he is compelled now 
to point out to Zelensky's Jewishness as almost the cause of the war and to Chubais's Jewishness to show that, look, he is a Jewish bureaucrat who ran away when the motherland was in trouble. And this type of political anti-Semitism is never just about the Jews. Mm. Governments resort to it through history. I mean, start with the Black Plague, <laughs> Black Death that the Jews were poisoning the wells and so on. It's when the government is in trouble, when the government feels that it's losing grip, when the government wants to deflect and obfuscate. And this is what I found very interesting about this. The other point is, of course, that that slight on Chubias being half Jewish and the fact that he's, he's run away to Israel in Putin's language, that does trade on an old anti-Semitic canard, doesn't it, of the disloyal Jew. Oh, absolutely. With the very long history, of course, not just in Europe, but in Russia in general. By the way, again, it's not just Russia. I can't think of any truly, you know, classically reactionary leader in European history, modern European history, who did not resort to anti-Semitism. What's interesting about Putin, as you pointed out, is that clearly this is not his personal choice. He was forced to do it. And in the case of, you know, disloyalty, remember Stalin's so-called campaign against the rootless cosmopolitans. The country lay prostrated after this horrific war, World War II, or what the Russians called Great Patriotic War. People eating grass, 20 million dead. And what does Stalin do? He starts a campaign against the so-called rootless cosmopolitans. Then he arrests and shoots the members of the... Jewish anti-fascist committee, which essentially was a collection of the top members of the Russian intelligentsia. And finally, the so-called doctor's plot accusing them. And of course, the doctor's plot goes back to the centuries of the so-called blood libel. The interesting thing is, though, you've pointed out in this piece, and you've just said a moment ago, look, it may not be Putin's personal disposition, this anti-Semitism. And in fact, um, your piece points out that uh, he actually purchased for his old German language teacher an apartment in uh, downtown Tel Aviv, which would not have been cheap if anyone knows Israeli (laughs) real estate prices. But it's also a change, though, from Putin's statecraft, because hasn't he for a long time tried to nurture a friendship with Israel? I mean, wasn't Bibi Netanyahu rather muted in his criticism of, of Putin in the early part of this war? Absolutely. And let's remember that he also was and is actually uh, the first Soviet or Russian leader in history to visit Israel as part of the official state visit. And it's on that occasion that he had a very emotional reunion with his beloved teacher of German. With Israel, it's complex because, yes, in response or in return for Israel's rather muted criticism of Putin's war in Ukraine, Putin kind of grants Israel free hand in Syria, where, of course, there are Russian troops. And every time something happens there, Russia is kind of hands off, although it has quite a few military installations in Syria. How does this anti-Semitic language, though, go down with the broader Russian population? You know, I mean, do they respond to this? I know you say they read between the lines, but it's, I'm always very nervous about suggesting that a population at large harbors some deep prejudice. But how does it go down? 
Until very recently, the public opinion polls were very encouraging. I don't want to you know, be quoted on numbers, but the, the level of anti-Semitism was lower than the certain countries of Eastern or even Central and Western Europe in Russia. But the thing is, when the institutions of the civil society are very weak, the message, the interpretation of reality comes from the top. And Putin, believe it or not, is still quite popular, although we may not trust the polls in this kind of society. But generally, because of the war, there is a certain rally around the flag. And if this kind of leader sends out these messages, hints so transparently, then it's not very difficult to spark the traditional Russian age-long mistrust of Jews. How does it go down, by the way, in uh, Ukraine itself? Uh, The Ukrainians gave Vladimir Zelensky a very strong mandate at his election, overwhelmingly. But is there an anti-Semitic sentiment in Ukraine that maybe Putin is trying to sort of tap into as well to turn them against their own leader? That might be a part of it, definitely, because let's remember when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire, the worst pogroms, and of course there was no Ukrainian state, I want to be understood, but the worst pogroms happened, for example, in Odessa, which is now part of uh, Ukraine. But I don't think Putin is succeeding. You are quite right to point out that Zelensky is still extremely popular. And look, this was one of the most pleasant surprises of the end of the Soviet rule, that everybody thought that given the history of the Pale of Settlement, where Jews were supposed to live under the czars and from where they could not, it was kind of a huge ghetto, primarily in Belarus and Ukraine, that given that history and given the history of the horrific pogroms, Ukrainians would emerge as a very anti-Jewish nation. But that didn't happen. One of the most pleasant surprises here, of course, is Zelensky. We've been talking there about the sort of end of the Soviet Union. And this brings us to a very interesting book of your latest project. And we are speaking here with Dr. Leon Aron. He's with the American Enterprise Institute. You have this new book coming out, Leon, called Riding the Tiger, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the Uses of War. You make this fascinating observation where you say, despite Putin being on the record as having no nostalgia for communism of the Soviet era, why do you think he is rebuilding the old Union of Soviet Socialist Republics? You're absolutely right. He is not at all in favor of Marxism, Leninism, communism, all of that ideological foundation of the Soviet Union. He is after recreating for Russia the legacy of the Soviet superpower. For him, as for the millions of Russians, the tragedy of the Soviet collapse was not in the tragedy of defeated ideology. It was in the fact that here was a country, second most important in the world, as they saw it, a counterweight, by the way, not just militarily, but also morally, to the United States, and suddenly it finds itself, if not quite on the trash heap of history, but sort of, you know, shunted outside of the global affairs. And what Putin gave the Russians is this promise or a self-imposed mission that I would rebuild Russia to become like the Soviet Union and no one 
would be mastering global affairs without Russia's consent or Russia's participation. And that apparently worked very well. Well, the other interesting thing is that uh, during the Cold War, of course, the uh, USSR was positioned well to the left of the United States and Western Europe. Isn't modern Russia positioned rather to the right, at least on nationalist questions, certain moral questions, positioned to the right of the Western world? Yes, yes. Putin, like all the Russians, plays chess and it's called castling. Yes, he moved, <laughs> he moved from the left to the right, not only that, but also on gender equality and issues that are very important for the West as a part of the growing civil society. Correct. And his slogans are those of a classic reactionary right-wing European uh, leader. The Russians apparently don't care that much about that so long as he does two things restores Russia's greatness and protects them from this alleged assault by the West. And these are kind of the twin pillars in the foundation of Putin's legitimacy. The problem for Putin, though, isn't it, Lee, on that uh, in rebuilding a, a version of the old USSR, if you look at the 15 constituent nations of the old Soviet Union, there's only one left, and that's Russia itself, of the others, well, you've got Ukraine, uh, on which he's waging war, and then three Baltic states, they've actually gone to the Western camp. How does he conceivably, in a practical sense, rebuild something resembling the old USSR when all of the non-Russian republics have walked away? Andrew, uh, he is not out to rebuild the USSR in a geographic sense. He is to rebuild it in uh, the geopolitical sense, by which I mean no longer with Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Georgia, Moldova, parts of the same state, but with the control, political control, over the post-Soviet space. And yes, he had to let the, well, actually this happened under previous rule of Boris Yeltsin in the 90s, he had to let the Baltic states go, although I think I'm sure it galls him and join NATO. But he certainly does not want anybody else, first of all, to join NATO. Ukraine is a very special case, Andrew. Putin published an article a couple of years ago saying that these are fraternal people. In fact, we are the same people. And the problem is the same people was heading west was creating a civil society, was creating a democratic society, at some point would become a member of the EU, if not NATO. Nobody was really realistically thinking about NATO. And that is an existential threat to Putin, because one of these days, the Russians would say, look, our fraternal people, our cousins, our brothers in Ukraine, having a flourishing European type of society. Why can't we? And this I think ultimately this existential challenge to Putin's regime was ultimately responsible for this war. Is he having some success, though, in rebuilding a kind of de facto, I admit it's a de facto USSR in the countries to his south, and we're talking here about uh, Central Asia, countries where there, there is not a tradition of Western democracy, there are strong men. Is he having some success in, in forging something akin to the old USSR? 
in his first couple of terms, he created a couple of international organizations to sort of balance the EU. Yes, yes. With some Central Asian nations joining, with Ukraine joining, and then they all started falling out. In Central Asia, he has a peculiar problem of uh, China, because, of course, those Central Asian nations, as you said, they don't care about the political arrangements, either in Russia or China, but China is much richer. It could give them much more. And they're really reorienting themselves in that direction. In the case of Ukraine, as my former professor at Columbia University, Zbigniew Brzezinski, used to say, without Ukraine, there is no Russian empire. Without Ukraine, there is no Russian superpowership. And that is why when the Ukrainians had their a revolution in 2014 and ousted Viktor Yanukovych, who was a pro-Russian president. That is when Putin decided enough is enough. We cannot let Ukraine go. Leon Aron of the American Enterprise Institute. At our website, there's a link to his article in The Atlantic, and his new book is called Riding the Tiger, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the Uses of War. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.